All right, what is up, my paranormal pal? You have landed on Renegade Files, your underground connection to paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, and deep underground covert culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting a pirate radio signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Renegade Files, episode 35, The Overpopulation Myth. The world is overpopulated, and the growth of humanity is constantly increasing, doubling even, every few years. Soon, the Earth will be unable to support us all, because the planet won't be able to provide enough air, water, food, and space for everyone and we will all starve. This fear has been driven by cultural messaging for as long as I can remember, my whole life, and well before. Wouldn't it be a huge relief if we could just snap our fingers and totally solve this crisis? Okay. The Earth is not overpopulated by humans. Far from it. In fact, the opposite is true. Come with me, and we'll explore the origins of this wholly unfounded myth upon which we all grew up. In this episode of Renegade Files, we go deep into the overpopulation lie. Who started it? Why has it been so successful? And who benefits from such a well-spun, convincing, but completely false narrative? This time on Renegade Files... The overpopulation myth. Origins of Misconception. The ironic idea that humanity can only survive by deleting humans has been around since 1798 when Thomas Malthus wrote a paper entitled An Essay on the Principle of Population. In this document, Malthus claimed that human population growth would eventually overwhelm the planet's natural resources and cause starvation. He suggested that the only way to stop that from happening was through controlling the growth of the population, and his basic suggestion was to focus such efforts on the poorer classes and underdeveloped populations who tended to procreate at higher rates, according to him. One early example of his influence on legislation was the English Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. This law leveraged the Malthus overpopulation scare to restrict food and other essential supplies being given to the poor in an effort to stem population growth and save the world, or at least save England. And it is only one example of many such misinformed laws over the ages. Malthusian theory, as it is called, has unfortunately influenced legislation, public opinion, political attitudes, and broad beliefs about the world for hundreds of years at this point. 
Then, a second wave of overpopulation scare came to us through the dark and disturbing ideas behind what is known as eugenics, which is applying selective reproduction practices to either achieve preferred offspring traits or to reduce the procreation of people with undesirable traits. And you can see how quickly and how badly that could go. Because who decides the traits? And we end up with disasters of human rights violations. Nazi Germany was big into eugenics as a way to get rid of what they called undesirables. Just a historical fact. But this idea isn't only relegated to the dusty books of history. And here's a little zinger that you may not have heard about before. The California prison system forcibly sterilized 1,400 female inmates between 1997 and 2003, most of them without their knowledge. It is unknown how many were sterilized against their will from 2003 to 2014 because those records went dark due to attorney Cynthia Chandler who started working to pass a bill that bans forced sterilizations in prisons. She began that work in 2003. Court documents revealed that the California prisons coded these procedures as, quote, medically necessary, so the state taxpayers would ultimately pay for them. One case involved a 24-year-old inmate who was told she had cancer and that she would have to have a hysterectomy to survive. After the procedure had been done, she learned from one of the doctors that she had never had cancer. And now, she is left without the possibility of having children of her own for the rest of her life. And that is just one example of the 1400 that we know about. All of this was absolutely practiced as a way to control the procreation of those whom the state believed to be unworthy. This is the state of California, and that is exactly eugenics. And if that sounds impossible, I would point out one statement made by Dr. James Heinrich, the OBGYN who performed these sterilizations, as saying that these forced sterilizations are, according to him, quote, cheaper than welfare, end quote. This is from an article entitled, Inside the Hidden Campaign to Forcibly Sterilize Thousands of Inmates in California's Women Prisons by Julia Naftulin on November 24, 2020 for Insider.com. There's also the controversy around Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and regardless of which side of that fence you support, she did write in a 1921 article in her own words, quote, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective, end quote. And that is exactly eugenics. So, the sordid ideas and tragic results of eugenics 
weaves its way into the overpopulation myth because it's a way for those in power to try to manage the population on an individual or trait-based system, and it very often falls into or reveals an underlying racism. The third wave of overpopulation scare takes the form of a book written by a California professor and his wife. The Thomas Malthus Overpopulation Essay became the basis for the 1968 book The Population Bomb, which was financed and largely controlled by the Sierra Club and written by Stanford University professor Paul R. Ehrlich. The book was also co-authored by Ehrlich's wife, Anne Howard Ehrlich, also a Stanford professor at the time, but the Sierra Club refused to list her as a co-author, for whatever reason. The book has been widely criticized for its alarmist tones and ridiculed because its dire predictions failed to materialize. But it did drive generations into overpopulation fears and influenced many resulting policies. These policies found their way into legislation, they found their way into protocol, and they found their way into the educational system. The Sierra Club would also eventually come to disavow the premise and positions of the book, and we'll get into that later. The book, The Population Bomb, argues that the existing population, that is the population in 1968 when the book was written, was not being fed adequately, but that it was also growing rapidly, so there would soon be too little food for everyone. The book suggests, quote, we must rapidly bring the world population under control, reducing the growth rate to zero or making it negative. Conscious regulation of human numbers must be achieved, end quote. The population bomb also puts forth these other Orwellian ideas. Adding temporary sterilants to the water supply or staple foods. Taxing families at higher rates for each additional child they have. Putting luxury taxes on childcare goods. Promoting incentives for men who agree to permanent sterilization. The population bomb also proposed creating a federal Department of Population and Environment which should, and I quote, be set up with the power to take whatever steps are necessary to establish a reasonable population size in the United States, end quote. According to the book, this federal department should support research into population control, better contraceptives, mass sterilization, and prenatal sex identification so that families could choose to have a male child and not complete to term a female child in order to reduce the birth rate. Remember, both authors of this book were Stanford University professors. The Ehrlichs also suggest that the U.S. enact these measures upon their own citizens first 
before they impose them on the real culprits of overpopulation, the third world countries, in order to avoid accusations of racism. I'm telling you, this book is a disaster. And these professors both stand behind this book 90% to this day. In the Population Bomb's opening lines, the authors state that nothing can prevent famines in which hundreds of millions of people will die during the 1970s. This didn't happen, and so they changed the deadline to the 1980s in later editions, but it still did not happen. Now, yes, we have hunger problems in certain areas of the world, in certain populations of America, but these are political corruption and resource mismanagement issues, poverty issues, and not population issues. The Indian economist and Nobel Memorial Prize winner, Amartya Sen, has argued that nations with democracy and a free press have virtually never suffered from extended famines. And a 2010 United Nations report stated the percentage of the world's population who qualifies as undernourished has fallen by more than half, from 33% to about 16% since the Ehrlichs published The Population Bomb. The book also predicted that it was already far too late to prevent a substantial increase in the global death rate. The idea being that the more people there are, the more crime there will be, the less resources there will be, and inevitably, the more people will die sooner. However, in reality, the global death rate has continued to decline substantially since then, from 13 in 1000 in 1965 to 10 in 1000 in 1990. And even though the population of the world has more than doubled, the calories consumed per person has actually increased by 24%. This leads us to another point which makes the ideas in the Population Explosion book null and void. Ironically, unlike the predictions made by the Ehrlichs, today the world faces major public health problems worldwide as a result of overeating. We have a rapidly growing global pandemic of obesity and its clinical outcome type 2 diabetes. And this is no longer just an American problem, although probably shows its face the worst here. Jonathan Last, author of the book What to Expect When No One's Expecting, has called the population bomb, quote, one of the most spectacularly foolish books ever published. And recall that I mentioned the fact that the Sierra Club, who is instrumental in initially getting the population bomb published, has since switched its position on the matter. In a new article on the Sierra Club website entitled The Overpopulation Myth and Its Dangerous Connotations, we read... The mainstream environmental movement has an uncomfortable history regarding race and equity, 
while Sierra Club and other organizations are actively working to improve in this arena, some problematic narratives still exist. One of these is the claim that drastic population reduction measures are necessary to reach our climate goals. We, as environmentalists, must flatly reject this theory. It is both factually incorrect and deeply racist. In fact, the very roots of the modern population control movement are racist. Commonly traced back to the 1968 book, The Population Bomb, which the Sierra Club helped to get published, remember, Sierra Club must reckon with its own role in this history. And that's all of the article we'll go into, but you get the point. Even the Sierra Club, one of the most famous environmental groups ever, agrees that the ideas of overpopulation and the need for drastic population reduction measures come from sketchy beginnings and are, as they plainly say, factually incorrect. So, how has this been so successful? How has this fake news succeeded? Well, there are a few reasons. Not the least of which is the lockstep compliance and repetitive info battering of the mainstream media when it comes to official narrative spin. The large government and the big companies say resources are scarce to drive prices up, and they prove it with limited hangouts of one-sided numbers and chicken little, the sky is falling type doom. And to be frank, people believe it because they saw it on television. Another reason that the overpopulation myth is so compelling is that, for the most part, we as humans all live together. We collect in the cities and generally around the coastlines and everywhere we look we see other people and it does seem like more are moving to town every day. Who opened the gate is what my grandmother used to say about people moving to our area. She wouldn't believe it if she were here now. Where I live in the uncharted tropics, an amount of people equal to the population of Orlando, Florida, moves to the state every year. And enormous numbers of people live here in the winter, then leave again in the summer. And many of both these seasonal residents and the newly relocated migrants delight in telling us how superior the place they just moved from is when compared to this place they just moved to. This reveals at best a general dislike for the overall climate of the eastern seaboard and at worst a learning and comprehension deficit revealed by the counterproductive action of undertaking a logistic relocation to a place where you are worse off than you were before you moved. The point is, we live around other people, and everywhere seems to get more and more crowded every day, so when the news or a book tells us that the world is overpopulated, we easily believe it. The reality is that the Earth is enormous, particularly when you compare it to the human population. 
let's look at some of the numbers from a logical standpoint. 71% of the Earth's surface is water. So right away, the vast majority of the planet is uninhabited by humans. Of the remaining 29% of the Earth, a study carried out by Conservation International found that 46% of the world's landmass is wilderness, so roughly half of the dry land on Earth. Now yes, there are other studies and the definitions of wilderness can vary, so the percentages do as well. But the point is that far more of our planet is wild than we would naturally guess, mainly because we all live together. Fly from Texas to California and look down. Fly from Tallahassee to Key West and do the same. Enormous areas of the country are essentially empty terrain. Look at a map of the populated areas of Canada or Australia or Russia. Virtually empty. Plankton makes up three times more biomass than all seven billion humans combined. Every person in the world could fit on the island of Zanzibar. If every human on the planet all went to Antarctica at once and stood together, we would barely take up one-tenth of it. On a map, if you draw a perfect circle that encloses China, India, and Japan, more people live inside that circle than live outside of it. So, while we may have problems of starvation, freshwater access, or deforestation in parts of the world, these are not the results of overpopulation, but rather the results of poor central planning, misallocation of resources, natural disaster, and or political corruption. So who benefits? The idea that overpopulation is the root cause of environmental and economic disaster is a dangerous one. First, because it isn't true, and second, because it gives a free pass to the creators of the actual problems, mainly large governments and their overreaching controls, and massive corporations who can blame overpopulation for their own environmental destruction. At the same time, giant companies who sell consumer goods benefit when their target markets believe that resources are limited and demand or population is overwhelming and growing out of control. In short, overpopulation is a built-in driver of high prices because it creates a permanent scarcity mentality among the customers. And finally, a rising population does not equal a rise in the land needed to make food. Thanks to continuing increases in crop yields, the world's farmers are harvesting hundreds of millions of tons more grain each year on tens of millions of acres less land than they did in the 1970s and 80s. For example, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the world was producing about 1.9 million metric tons of grain 
from 579.1 hectares of land. A hectare is 2.7 acres in 1976. So in 2004, we got 3.1 million metric tons. So a little more than a million more metric tons of grain from only 517 hectares of land. So about 153 less acres. That's quite a jump. This is not to say that we won't possibly need to dedicate more land to farming in the future. The point is, a rise in population is not always matched by an equal rise in the amount of land required to feed that population. And then you get into these arguments which are, well, the more people there are, the more brains there are, and the more good ideas we're likely to come up with, and we're really good at solving problems. And it isn't that that there's unlimited resources, but it's also not the case that there's unlimited people. And that's kind of what we run into. The earth replenishes itself. We have a water cycle. The really, the only way to really get rid of water is to pollute it. We really don't get rid of much water when we drink it. It just sort of changes form and it goes d- down and around. And yes, we can mess it up. But the fact that the earth is a closed system doesn't mean that it's like, a closet with one refrigerator of food and the more people you put in there the less that food is going to go around it isn't closed in that way it's a living breathing gigantic planet of an organism and the resources are constantly shifting from one form to another and the and the fact that there's ways to allocate that that are smarter than others that's kind of the issue it isn't that the more people that pop up here the less food they each get because all of our food is in a refrigerator somewhere and we're all locked in a room. So it's interesting to step back and, and realize that sometimes. Okay, so this ends up being a little shorter than usual, but I know you'd rather have that than a bunch of fluff. So anyway, uh, you know, it's interesting to me. And part of what's fascinating is how just one or two things written by someone can just persist, even though they're not factually correct for generations and even hundreds of years because these things become part and parcel of the way those in power think they latch onto it and then once we all kind of agree it's like oh yeah that's how it is you know if you ever remember watching game of thrones or at least the first five or six seasons that were so good and the in the in those stories uh you have the dothraki who are the sort of fierce fighting nomadic tribes of the more medieval sort of technology societies they're surrounded by. And those underdeveloped culture of the Dothraki says things like, the moon is a goddess. And then another person will say, it is known, (laughs) right? It is known. And that's just that. It's known. So why are you asking about it? And that's what happens with something like this. You have someone who writes an essay in the 1700s. When was that? 1798, Thomas Malthus writes one paper. And it's interesting that the people in power latch onto that. They, they, it's, it drives their fear. They're afraid that the world's going to gobble up all their resources and then they're not going to have as much gold because they're going to have to use it to do what I, you know, I don't know. It's just interesting. It's fascinating to me how something can be so wrong and yet be so persistent it's a good red flag for us as we move through our day and it's it's also healthy for us to step back and maybe cast a little more of a critical eye on some of these academic sacred cows you know one of the one of the biggest is 
the basic theory of macroeconomics, which any macroeconomic student will tell you is economics is a study of allocating limited resources to unlimited demand. And that isn't necessarily always true. But when you put that in the collegiate brain and then send them into the world, they just sort of apply that lens to every economic decision they make. And not everyone, but you understand what I mean. These these conceptions and these ideas that become our paradigms sometimes aren't right. I mean, it's obvious. We, we used to think the world was flat and it's a planet, so it's obviously not. We can go out and look at it and it's round. So is every other planet. This isn't rocket science. Well, bad example. But anyway, all I'm saying is I think it's a good idea sometime to step back and take a more critical look at some of our etched in stone ideas. That's it, whatever they are. And it's hard to do that because these things become so ingrained in our culture that to even question them, you get marginalized as an idiot. And it's not right. Just because someone told you that something was true doesn't mean it's true. That's the basis of this whole show. And I'm glad to have you along with me. Thank you so much for coming and exploring the overpopulation myth with me. I think there's a lot more here, but it does tread into some pretty boring ground, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. Um, Like I said, this was a shorter show, but sometimes that's okay. And like I mentioned, I know you'd rather have a shorter episode now and then than have me drone on with a bunch of fluff. That isn't my style. It isn't the Renegade Files style. But I am so happy to have you as a part of the Renegade Files crew. Please help me keep doing the show and get all of our crowdfunded content at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. There's also links in the show notes and at therenegadefiles.com to our Patreon page. You can access the page for free for a whole week. So check it out at no cost and I'll see you in there. And thank you sincerely to the awesome RFA agents already on Patreon. You help me make these episodes. You help me keep them ad-free for all of us. So please join them, help Renegade Files stick it to the man, and I'll see you in there. Until our next adventure, I am your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, tiki child.